Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, how you doing this Wednesday, January 11th? I sure hope nobody in your household was trying to fly somewhere this morning. Did you hear about that? Um, an FAA computer went down and uh, w- with the exception of a few flights out of Newark and Atlanta and flights that were already in the air, uh, the entire system was grounded. The entire system was grounded. I got a an urgent message from Joe Brancatelli, our friend who does the business travel newsletter Joe sent me. He sent out urgent emails this morning. And he, this is what he wrote. A crucial FAA computer went offline in the pre-dawn hours of the East Coast, and a nationwide ground stop on departures was in place until 9 a.m. Eastern time. Aircraft already in the sky were allowed to keep going, um, but he said nothing has departed since around 7 a.m., although some flights are being cleared to operate at Newark and Atlanta. The system that went down is apparently called NOTAM, Notice to Airmen, is what it stands for, which is totally bizarre. Um, but this NOTAM system is used to alert pilots to hazards. You know, if somebody runs into a wind shear, that's a strange weather phenomenon where because of the different temperatures of the air, if an airplane hits it, it, that's when those, when the airplane suddenly drops like a thousand feet in two seconds. Those are the kinds of, um, one of the kinds of hazards that this NOTAM system can use. Now, this isn't about collisions because the air, the airplanes themselves have the equipment to sense if another object is close by and there's a collision warning. So it isn't that kind of an alert but hazards that pilots might find as they are flying. So the system was supposed to be back online about 9 a.m. this morning. But you know how our airline system works. (laughs) The plane leaving New York, which is supposed to land in Atlanta and then go on to Cleveland and then go on to Chicago, if that flight out of New York is delayed for two hours, the whole system across the country backs up. Um, Joe Brancatelli said that this entire day, delays are going to cascade from east to west. And uh, he ended his note by saying, if you are scheduled to travel today and you can shift it, please do. Just save yourself the headache. Just do it. Tra- uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg was on MSNBC with Andrea Mitchell this morning, and she was asking him about it. And what he said was um, there should have been a redundancy. They're doing an investigation to find out what happened. When they discover what reason there was for this happening, they're going to put mechanisms in place to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, But he didn't really have a lot of answers for Andrea Mitchell. At one point, she asked him whether or not this could be some kind of 
I don't know, attack or sabotage or something nefarious. I want to share with you this interchange. Listen to this. Mr. Secretary, we've seen, though, domestic attacks on other aspects of our critical infrastructure, the power substations, of course. Are we absolutely positive this was not the result of any nefarious activity, either domestic or foreign? We're not prepared to rule that out. There hasn't been any indication of that. Uh, FBI has spoken to this, and, uh, of course, FAA is looking uh, closely at that as well as they work to see exactly what was going on inside the files that were in this system leading to this irregularity. So, again, what I would say is there is no direct indication of any kind of external or nefarious activity, but we're not yet prepared to rule that out. So they don't have any proof yet, but it's still on the table. The reporting as of this hour is that uh, across the country, 45% of all flights have either been delayed or canceled. The question in everybody's mind is, <laughs> okay, but w- will they write the ship today? Will tomorrow be okay? I guess, uh, I guess we will find out how that goes. Um, but this computer, this notice to airmen system, no TAMs, just stopped functioning this morning. Kind of scary. Um, and that's why all the flights were grounded. Pete Buttigieg went on to say that nobody was in any danger, that the flights were grounded until the computer was back up out of an abundance of caution. Okay, so there you go. Oh, my God, there's so much. How are we going to get to it all before we uh, start the interview uh, portion of our show today? Well, Joan, let's get to it then, shall we? George Santos, the congressman from New York, the guy, remember, who lied about everything? He lied about his parentage. He lied about his religion. He lied about his schooling. He lied about his job history. He literally created a fictitious person to run for Congress. One little Long Island newspaper uh, came out and said that a lot about him was fraudulent. Nobody picked up the story. Uh, He clearly wasn't vetted thoroughly by either party. And, um, I mean, this isn't just a guy who claimed that they've got a degree from an Ivy League school and it was found out that they left the school like one quarter short. I mean, this guy, like, fabricated like a whole nother person. It's it's really creepy. It's really bizarre. Kevin McCarthy, of course, couldn't afford to say anything when he was um, trying to become the speaker because he needed Santos's vote. But nobody, if you saw C-SPAN's camera work, most of the night George Santos sat by himself. Nobody wanted to talk to him. Sometimes when a group of Republicans were talking, he would kind of like creep up and stand behind them. But um, nobody really wanted to rub shoulders with George Santos. Well, his problems have deepened. Kevin McCarthy might not move against him. Steve Scalise isn't saying much, the number two Republican. But uh, the Nassau County, Nassau County in New York, where uh, Santos, I don't I don't even know if he's really from there. It's part of the area he's representing now in Congress. 
the Nassau County Republican Committee came out and said that they thought that he should resign. He should not be allowed in Congress. He should not be allowed pretty much to do anything of any sort, anywhere, anytime for the rest of his life. A couple of Republican Congress people, Representative uh, Anthony Desposito, and um, there is a, a former Republican congressman from the area as well that are both saying George Santos needs to resign. Democrats in Congress have filed ethics complaints against Santos, though we do know the Republican Party wants to uh, or perhaps already is on the way to gutting the whole ethics structure that exists in Congress because it suits them. And uh, Brazil where Mr. Santos was involved in some nefarious activity, Brazil announced that they are going to once again take up their investigation into him and uh, there will possibly be criminal charges brought. I mean, (laughs) it's like a movie. Probably in the future a movie will be made of this, but this guy is no hero. And... um, like I said, Kevin McCarthy, he can't afford to rock the boat. He can't afford he can't afford to say anything even about someone like George Santos, a complete pathological liar. That, however, did not stop officials, and there has been more than one who've come out to call for his resignation from Nassau County. Listen to this sound. George Santos's campaign last year was a campaign of deceit, lies, and fabrication. He deceived the voters of the 3rd Congressional District. He deceived the members of the Nassau County Republican Committee, elected officials, his colleagues, candidates, his opponents, and even some of the media. His lies were not mere fibs. He disgraced the House of Representatives, and in particular, his fabrications went too far. Many groups were hurt. Specifically, I look at those families that were touched by the horrors of the Holocaust and feel for them. He has no place in the Nassau County Republican Committee, nor should he serve in public service, nor as an elected official. He's not welcome here at Republican headquarters for meetings or at any of our events. As I said, he's disgraced the House of Representatives, and we do not consider him one of our Congress people. Today, on behalf of the Nassau County Republican Committee, I am calling for his immediate resignation. And there have been several Nassau County um, Republicans who have come out publicly to call for his resignation. So you might wonder... How do you think Mr. Santos is taking all this? Well, he was besieged. He was beset by reporters. He was swarmed as he and an aide were desperately trying to get on an elevator and get away by reporters who wanted to get uh, his reaction to all of these calls for his resignation. Uh, Listen very closely to this. 
And they got in the elevator, George Santos hiding behind his aide, who was desperately pushing the buttons to get the door to close. It was a little tricky to hear, but the very first reporter who said, will you resign? He says to her, I will not resign. And you know what? From what I'm hearing, I don't think that there is a mechanism that exists to force him to resign. In situations like this, it's always been the result of public and peer pressure that has gotten politicians to step away. Maybe that will happen with Mr. Santos, but he shows no sign so far of responding to any of this. And big question going forward is uh, now that uh, Kevin McCarthy is handing out of the treats that he promised to the holdouts who voted um, against him and then either by changing their vote or voting present allowed him to become speaker. A lot of those are um, getting their committee assignments. So he won't speak out publicly. Neither will Steve Scalise will say neither of them will say anything about George Santos. So let's watch and see whether or not Santos gets any committee assignments at all or certainly any prime committee assignments. He's asked, oh, I'm trying to remember which committee it's, uh, it's not oversight. Um, it might be ways and means. It's a committee, a powerful committee that controls money. And he has asked to be seated on that one. We'll see. We'll see if Kevin McCarthy does that. Maybe the reason the Nassau County Republicans are so publicly repudiating George Santos is to prevent Kevin McCarthy from elevating him in any way, shape, or form. Kevin McCarthy doesn't care about how the government runs. Remember, Kevin McCarthy has achieved his life stream. He is Speaker of the House. That's all that matters. You got to remember that. Just like with Trump, any situation you put Trump in, you got to figure out what benefits Trump, and that's the action he will take. Same with Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy might have succumbed to George Santos, please, if George said, you know, I will vote for you. I will support you every step of the way if you do this for me. But now the Nassau County Republicans have said, uh-uh. No, this guy, no, he's bad. He's bad news. So now Kevin McCarthy has to decide, is getting Santos support worth ticking off a powerful Republican group? Hmm, which could be the real reason they came out so publicly. They came out hard. They came out fast. We're going to take a break. The assault weapons ban passed in Springfield Um, I have more information on exactly what's in the bill. We're going to talk through some of it right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. 
WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Late into the night, Don Harmon, Senate President, um, House President Chris Welch, House Speaker Chris Welch, and Governor Pritzker were working, working, working. There were some Democratic senators who had some questions about some things they didn't like in the assault weapons ban bill. They were pressured, convinced, cajoled into getting on board. And it is now it takes effect immediately. Now, I'm going to go through because I know I had some questions about exactly what was in the bill. There's actually several bills and I'm not going to bother with the various bill number designations. There's three or four or five bills that covered this whole issue. So here's where things stand. And this, as soon as the governor signs it, which he may have already done, um, the legislation is, is effective immediately. Now, this isn't one of those things that takes place like next to January 1st, 2024. So we have a ban on assault weapons in the state of Illinois. We have also created a cap on sales of high-capacity ammunition magazines. We have banned so-called switches. Switches are things that can take a legal handgun and convert it into an assault weapon. I'm not quite sure how that works, but I know that those things exist. So we have now banned switches in the state of Illinois. Courts have been given more power um, to prevent individuals that they deem to be dangerous from possessing a firearm. This would be done through a restraining order. And um, so the courts have more power to take guns away from people they perceive to be dangerous. If you are currently the owner of a semi-automatic rifle, you have to now register that. You have to register it with law enforcement. Um, they say this is really important, and I completely agree. Law enforcement needs to know where these weapons are and who to hold accountable if they fall into the wrong hands. You've got one of these semi-automatic rifles, you register it. You don't store it carefully. Somebody goes in your garage, takes it, and goes out and commits a crime. The police will trace it back to you, and you may face liability in the crime, especially for people who don't lock their their guns up. Um, okay, there are also, there's now a ban on ghost guns. Those are guns with no serial numbers. Some of them, a large percentage of them, uh, can be made by 3D printers these days. They don't have any kind of paper trail, any kind of provenance. Those weapons, the unserialized ghost guns, are now banned. Now, a while ago, Governor Pritzker signed legislation that expanded background checks on gun sales. Um, they've tried to modernize and strengthen the FOID card system, firearm owner identification card system. And 
We've tried to also give the Illinois State Police more power to monitor and arrest gun traffickers. I was kind of naive about this. I thought this was mostly a question of, you know, a gangbanger drives over to Indiana and buys 10 weapons and throws them in the trunk of their car. But it is actually a huge trafficking problem, like trucks going over and being loaded up with guns and being brought to Illinois. It's a much bigger problem than I realized. And the Illinois State Police now have more money and more power to go after this. Uh, Gun dealers have to be certified by the state. Um, Part of the money that's going to be allocated for this, by the way, is also going to go to neighborhoods, community-based violence prevention programs. They're going to identify the communities that are most affected by firearm violence and send extra support their way. Um, There's also now law supporting the Illinois State Police's Internet-based system for reporting stolen firearms. Um, They've tightened up the regulations around gun transfers. It's really wide-ranging. The big question some of the Democrats were afraid of was they didn't like the idea of having to register that people who currently owned these weapons and were going to be grandfathered in to be able to continue to keep them, you know, they weren't sure that those people should have to register with the police. And I was really afraid that that provision would go away, even though Chris Welch said he's not signing a bill that doesn't have that, because that immediately takes all the air out of the balloon. You know, fine, we won't sell them anymore. They're banned but if people have them and they and the police don't know about it, that's um, that's part of the problem. So uh, those semi-automatic rifles, anything that can be converted to an automatic weapon, um, now the police have to know that you've got it, and um, they need the serial numbers so they can trace it if it's involved in a crime. One last thing before we break. You heard, um, of course, you were listening to the commercial break very carefully. I know you were. You heard about our mayoral forum, which is taking place Thursday, January 26th, starting at noon here on WCPT. We want to know what you want me and Santita and Patty to ask the candidates. Yeah, we, we've got some ideas, but we want to hear from you. So we've now created an email box. You can reach it at question at wcpt820.com, question at wcpt820.com. Send us your question. What do you want, Paul Vallis and Lori Lightfoot and Brandon Johnson and Chewy Garcia? What question do you want them to answer? Let us know. We're going to keep track of all that. We're going to take a break. We're going to get started uh, with Professor Joel Ostro. We're going to bring you up to speed on all the developments with Ukraine and Russia right after this. Take Jonas Pazito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where you can hear the Stephanie Miller Show every weekday, 8 to 11 a.m., because facts matter.
This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Professor Joel Ostro is an expert on Russia, democratic failure, the rise of authoritarianism. He's a political science professor at Benedictine University and joins us almost weekly when it seems like the war in Ukraine, despite the fact that, you know, it's not ending, uh, is uh, is continually morphing. And uh, there are things that need to be talked about. Um, I sent uh, Joel today before we talked today a whole list of like eight different things (laughs) going on in Ukraine that we probably won't have time to get to all eight of them, but we will do our best. Joel, thank you so much for being here again. Pleasure's all mine, Joan. Thank you. Um, there have been developments on the field. You know, there's been the United States announcement yeah. that we were going to be bringing Ukrainians to the United States to train them on some of these missile batteries Originally, I thought the training, it was, there was reports that the training was going to take place like in Germany. Does, why do you think they're bringing them here? And is that, is that poking Putin? Is that an escalation or is it just something that makes sense to do it here? It's just a thing. Uh, I really can't comment on why, uh, all of the training isn't happening in Germany because um, I don't think any of us knows for sure. The menu of reasons could be, A, there aren't enough of the Patriot missile systems uh, located there to train enough of the Ukrainians, given how many of the systems we are sending to Ukraine. Uh, another possibility is uh Having trained some of them on Patriot missile systems in Germany, those missile systems themselves went to Ukraine. Um, That seems like quite a possibility uh, because there was an urgency for getting them there. Um, I don't know the exact number, to be honest, uh, uh, because I don't study closely the U.S. military. uh, But I do know that um, when this was first announced, uh, and I already knew well, Patriot missile systems are not in enormous supply. There aren't that many of them out there. Many of them can't be moved because they're needed where they are. Um, and so uh, the limited numbers of them with uh, combined with the number of people who need to be trained on them might mean that, um, you know, there's an urgency to to train in multiple locations. I don't imagine you were surprised when the Russian ambassador to the United States made a few cranky comments when this was announced that it sort of proves that um, Washington really is involved in this war. Not that I think we had any question about that. Did we, Joe? You know, did they, was this a surprise to them? Oh, wait, Washington's involved. I think what must irk them more is uh, the sort of step-by-step expansion of the types of weapon systems that, the United States, NATO, and, and others are providing. Uh, just today it was announced uh, that more armed per, uh, armored vehicles uh, uh, are going to be going over to Ukraine. Um, uh, I think from Germany uh, was one supplier, but, but, you know, all of this is NATO. Uh, we do this in, 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 in consort with each other. So it, it, whether they're coming from Germany or Poland or the United States is almost immaterial. Uh, 
we can just say we collectively are providing more armored vehicles, uh, which they have wanted, which would include armored personnel carriers. But, um, you know, they're still uh, calling for tanks uh, and and slowly by slowly uh, we're starting to hear that perhaps uh, that is also going to be in the offing quite soon. So do you think um, we are, it seems to me, knowing absolutely nothing about anything, it seems to me we are doing this to keep Ukraine in the fight so that they can um, hold their own and maybe make some inroads and yet maybe not going so far in that Putin is provoked to truly escalate. It seems like a kind of a balancing act to me. Is that how you see it? Uh, in part, but I think also the urgency escalated with Russia's tactics over the last couple of months, uh, attacking the uh, energy infrastructure, um, uh, you know, the electricity grid, uh, heating and water, uh, all of those essentials for basic life for civilians, uh, which Russia has been systematically targeting with drones and missile strikes uh, all across Ukraine and, and the major population centers, I think that increased the urgency to to shift the shift the battle, as it were, uh, to put Russia more on the defensive again. And um, I think this is all part of that strategy. Uh, certainly, the provision of the the Patriot systems is is geared towards that to helping Ukraine protect its skies. Um, and I think, uh, um, you know, all of this falls in line with that. Um, obviously, Ukraine has had made great advances uh, taking back territory that Russia had taken over earlier in the war. Uh, but there's certainly widespread concern over over the methods and tactics of, of Russia's military and, and the paramilitary groups. Um, We've heard a lot about the Wagner Group in recent days, um, and uh, and I think that's that's also part of the concern is just the horrific nature of Russia's tactics and increase the urgency to provide Ukraine with more of a means to um, to seize control over over the nature of the battle at any given moment. You and I were both pretty impressed when President Zelensky came to the United States. Um, obviously spoke privately with President Biden, made a rousing address to Congress. Afterwards, there were members of Congress who said that they, well, while the hardliners might not ever change their position, they felt that a lot of people who may have been swayable about the idea of continuing to support Ukraine were probably swayed by his speech. And yet now we see the Republicans taking charge of Congress and the talk of um, cutting aid to Ukraine is still circulating. What do you see there? I see the extreme right of the Republican Party, which encompasses more than 50 percent of uh, the Republican elected leadership, not only at the federal level, but at the state and local levels as well uh, as uh, supporting dictatorship, supporting Putin, uh, and supporting uh, Trump's love affair and movement of the Republican Party uh, towards uh, that direction. It's inexplicable. Uh, it's idiotic. It's against America's interests. It's certainly against the interests of the American people, uh, or at least against those who support the Constitution and democracy. I have no other explanation for it. Uh, but I will add, uh, that the criticisms 
of an hesitancy for supporting Ukraine does not exist only on the extreme right. It does also exist on the far left of the Democratic Party. Uh, and let's not forget that AOC voted against uh, the budget for next year. The uh, military budget? Supremely disappointing. Or the $1.7 trillion budget? The $1.7 trillion because of the military spending, largely because of the support for Ukraine. Don't come out and say it that way, but that's what was behind it. Well, I know that there have always been people on the left who believed that we put too much money into our military, uh, but I've never heard them actually break it down and say, well, yeah, there's too much money in the military, especially I don't like the money that goes to X program. I I don't believe, if she did, I missed it, that she came out and said the thing I don't like about the military budget is the Ukraine spending. She She was raising questions about it in the summer and early fall. Uh, we haven't heard that explicitly stated since then, but but the vote speaks for itself. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> but clearly, let, let's as one who rails against false equivalencies, uh, let's not engage in false equivalencies here. Uh, it is the far right that is the threat uh, to our democracy and is the far right in this country that is Uh, one of the biggest threats to Ukraine that is not named Vladimir Putin. Tucker Carlson has been talking a lot about uh, his his support for the rioting that's going on in Brazil, where uh, Jair Bolsonaro was defeated by Lula um, and the capital was attacked, reminiscent of seeing our capital attacked. I don't understand This isn't the first time Tucker Carlson has been supporting dictators. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you saw this. This was oh, oh, this was quite a while ago, and I don't think I ever even mentioned it on the air. There was supposedly a leaked Russian memo that told the Russian broadcasters to make sure to include as many Tucker Carlson clips in their broadcast as they could. Yes. Why isn't this guy being investigated for treason? And the Russian Internet trolls who feed the misinformation and disinformation in social media throughout this country also rely heavily on the drivel that comes out of Tucker Carlson's mouth. Man, I just don't understand. You know, this is a trust fund baby. You know, uh, for those of you who don't know, Tucker Carlson uh, is inherited part of the Swanson TV dinner fortune. I mean, this guy doesn't oh, have to really? work a day in his life. And, and so he's clearly not. On that explains what happened to his brain. God, probably. <laughs> um, but, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. It, it, and it, is he um, an unofficial mouthpiece for Rupert Murdoch? Does Rupert Murdoch condone um, fascism? Is he a fascist and wants to promote fascism? That's why he gives Tucker Carlson free reign. I, I don't know that you can answer this, but I wish somebody no. could. No idea. It's it's disgusting is what it is. Um, yeah. Uh, the whole phenomenon, because it's not just Tucker Carlson, Fox News, right over the last decade at least, right? Um, Seems yeah. to be. I mean, a lot of good people have left there, but uh, but it, it's it's a danger, right? It's, it's a it's a real threat to our democracy. Uh, 
and it and and it has spawned uh, outlets that are even further to the right and more absurd than them. Right, the One American yeah. News Network, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And about thirty percent of the American public, you know, cheers that garbage. It's 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 not good. It's not uh, it's not good. Uh, we're going to take a break and, when and, we come and back. Anyone could. And then anyone could uh, could visit with and, and hear Zelensky's speech in Congress and 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 then come out with uh, with anything other than support for Ukraine is is like you put it it's mind boggling it's it's it makes no sense no not to me and it never will um, Joel let's take a break I'm talking to Professor Joel Ostro he's a political science professor at Benedictine University with an expertise in Russia. We're going to talk a little bit more about what's going on in Ukraine and in Russia right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm talking with political science professor Joel Ostro. He's with Benedictine University, and he has an expertise in Russia. The latest fighting in Ukraine seems centered on a salt mining town, Solodar, in eastern Ukraine. Is this is this something strategic? Oh, explain to me why this would be an area where the fighting would be focused. Uh, nobody can answer that. Uh, and, and with no disrespect to anyone there, I was just scrolling, anticipating this conversation. I was trying to find an equivalent. So remember last time I was on, I, I presented the, you know, the why does Ukraine matter and um, asked everyone, the listeners and you to, to imagine that Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Iowa uh, were an independent state devoted to liberty and democracy, and the other 46 states were a behemoth dictatorship intent on wiping us out. Um, And so you can imagine in that scenario strategically important cities. In that geography, the Quad Cities, uh, right on the Mississippi River, would be quite important. Uh, Perhaps... um, uh, oh, you know, the cities on the south uh, southwestern tip of the state uh, would be similarly important, you know, bordering states, whether like Edwardsville, for example, um, you know, Chicago, obviously, for its size, but even Milwaukee on the lake, Green Bay on the lake, those kinds of places, right? Those mm-hmm. would be your important uh your important areas. But then you have, um, you know, and my, again, apologies, but I landed on Coal City, Illinois, right? So this is the equivalent of a raging battle over Coal City. Um, why? Uh, so this is a battle that is being spearheaded by uh, the Wagner Group, um, a private army. Uh, that uh, founded and, and financed by uh, one of Putin's closest associates, uh, the infamous uh, Prigozhin, uh, uh, funded by him uh, and, and really burst on the scene uh, during Russia's uh, engagement in Syria, 
uh, and this Wagner group played an instrumental role there, but also has been uh, quite involved in, in Russia's incursions in uh, Chechnya and uh, Georgia and elsewhere over the years, but, but has really expanded its role in this battle, uh, was largely uh, responsible in the early days in 2013-2014 in Donbass. Um, so uh, Prigozhin has been an outspoken critic of, of the Russian military from the outset of, of, this, of this war that Russia has pursued. Uh, while still that they're just remaining. bad, or what is he? What yeah. is he doesn't like? Bad strategy, badly prepared, corruption. Um, you know, not having the weaponry that that they were supposed to have had, given the budgetary outlays over the the last several decades that have been given to the the Russian military industrial complex. Uh, critical of all of the inefficiencies that have led to this disaster for Russia, and so he has taken his Wagner group. Um, which has grown in numbers in part from the uh, conscription that Putin announced back in the late summer, uh, but also uh, even even more significantly, uh, the offer to prisoners around Russia, uh, the promise of freedom for, uh, or uh, whatever, um, a pardon of their convictions in exchange for going to fight. Um, and many of the prisoners, most of the prisoners have ended up uh, under the purview of the Wagner group. And he has taken these guys and, and used them largely as cannon fodder um, and has concentrated them in this battle for this really insignificant, tiny town, uh, former population of about 10,000 with really no strategic purpose, geographical, industrial, or otherwise. The strategy there has been uh, attrition. Thousands and thousands of Russians have been killed in this uh, seemingly meaningless battle. Um, uh, the reports over the last couple of days are shocked Ukrainians at how little uh, artillery is being used, meaning uh, uh, heavy munitions. It, it's largely rifle-level combat, rifles and grenades, uh, which is leading to uh, these uh, individuals getting wiped out while Russia is still advancing. In other words, it's just they're trying to overwhelm with numbers. Um, and, and the irony is uh, this is a, an entity under the control of a guy who's been critical of inefficiency of the Russian military. Well, I was just um, going to I was just going to ask you yeah. to a point. He's like, well, you know, your military, um, Mr. Putin, it's really doing a very bad job. But I've got a bunch of people. We can just kill them all off and we'll overwhelm these Ukrainians with numbers. And that doesn't seem to me to be much improvement over what the Russian army was doing. Is it just, is it just the, the increased numbers? And if you're one of those mercenaries, Joel, and you see this happening, I don't know. I think I would quit that job. Oh, you get shot. Uh, but it, it's to your first question, and, and I don't mean to be flippant, but I'm going to be flippant. So I guess I do mean to be. Don't look <laughs> for consistency from fascists, authoritarians, and dictators. Real, what do you mean by that? Never been known for logical consistency. Really? Because again, the it, it's just whatever works in this moment, kind of an, a mental state. If it favors me, that it's good. Uh, if it doesn't if it's, favor me, it's not. Right? Listen to Tucker Carlson. 
right? Yeah. And what about ism and all that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we've got these are essentially you you, you say a private military force. That means like mercenaries, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. And not all Russians, right? From you know, for, for anyone who wants to come, right? The Wagner Group has been quite active in uh, particularly in West Africa. Um, everywhere they go, it's to uh, to sow division among uh, those who are our allies and friends, uh, and to support. Uh, terrorists and other, uh, you know, other dark entities who who would cause harm to those uh, that we support, that support us, and, and uh, that seek to undermine uh, basically Western unity. So the Wagner Group has been instrumental and 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 works hand in hand with the Kremlin, uh, but independent of of the formal military chain of command. So is this a move by like Putin? The equivalent of Putin's equivalent of Iran's Revolutionary Guard. Mm-hmm. Is this a way for Vladimir Putin to maybe take the pressure off at home? Not so many uh, Russian men being recruited and drafted and dragged away from their families? Perhaps, uh, but uh, it was either last night or the night before, and I can't remember if it, which show it was on CNN that I kind of randomly had on, and um, it might have been Erin Burnett, actually. Uh, she seems to get a lot of these. Uh, had uh, a quite a lengthy uh, intercepted call from uh, one of these uh, members of the Wagner group uh, who made a call home talking about the, the catastrophe uh, for uh, his unit, or units, plural, uh, in this exact fighting, uh, but also commenting on the attack on that uh, munitions depot from last week uh, and and contradicting the numbers uh, reported by the Kremlin of, of casualties, uh, uh, more confirming Ukraine's contention that many hundred were killed or wounded. Or am I to assume that because these are people who are paid to fight, it is a, their job, a job they ostensibly sought out and applied for, that these kinds of defeats, these kinds of casualties maybe wouldn't have the same morale-lowering effect as they would in a regular army or, or not? Boy, but you could argue it's the opposite. These are people who, for, for whatever, forgetting the prisoners, because they had a whole different motivation and mindset, presumably, right? And that could be all over the map. Uh, but you might expect that, that the mercenaries would expect uh, sort of the best of conditions. And, and in many ways, the Wagner Group ought to be considered as, they, we were reporting on them before, as sort of an elite force. Uh, so this is the elite uh, what does that mean for the rest of the operation? And uh, if anything, you could see uh, um, an exacerbation of the problem of collapse of morale. Uh, because if that's the situation with the Wagner Group, then uh, what hope for your rank and fire, uh, file conscript? Uh, so, uh, and, and then the question becomes: How how well known do these uh, does this? Uh, bungling become, but it, it does seem like there's more and more awareness, at least, of of the serious problems of, in the Russian military. 
and really problems in munitions. I'm using 40-year-old munitions now, um, widespread and, and multiply confirmed reports of, of shortages of artillery, shortages of rockets, uh, relying on North Korea and Iran uh, for replacement artillery, uh, and those being slow in coming. Um, and quite quietly, on the flip side of that, uh, even Turkey now actively supplying Ukraine with ultra-modern weaponry, uh, both air and land. Uh, so um, that is a turn that has been underreported. It's been reported that Turkey is doing it, but the significance of Turkey actively uh, supporting Ukraine with, with ultra-modern weaponry uh, is a signal of a real turning away from Putin by uh, the government of Turkey uh, and Erdogan in, in particular, who at the beginning of this we were concerned was going to flip and, and, and ally closely with Putin. That has certainly not been the case. We are pretty close to taking a break for news, but I want to talk to you because not only is Turkey doing this, but, you know, in the Washington Post, you know, it's not quite the same cutting edge, but there's reporting that Poland is uh, going to be uh, sending some kind of fancy tanks to Ukraine. And yet, by all accounts, Hungary, Turkey and Poland are the members of NATO who seem most to be flirting with authoritarianism themselves. So um, I want to talk to you about uh, if is there significance beyond support for Ukraine in some of these moves? In other words, are we seeing perhaps uh, um, a change in, in attitude in some of these countries that have been seemingly moving farther and farther right I'm talking to Professor Joel Ostro. He is a um, political science professor at Benedictine University. He's an expert on Russia. He studies the collapse of democracies and authoritarianism. And we are talking about what is going on in Ukraine. We're going to continue this talk after the news for another half hour. If you would like to ask a question or make an observation if you would like to join our conversation after we come back from the news. Remember that number to call 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278. You can um, call us on that line. You can also text me on that line. Uh, Joel and I will be right back after this. The Rick Smith Show, live, weeknights from 8 to 10 p.m. Look at what's happening. The Rick Smith Show on WCPT 820. Everyone is talking about it. Chicago's Progressive Talk. Remember when you get to work to hop over to WCPT820.com or the TuneIn Radio app and stream The Stephanie Miller Show weekdays 8 to 11 a.m. on Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you CPT 820. I'm joined by political science professor Joel Ostro. He's with Benedictine University. He's an expert on Russia and authoritarianism and uh, also how democracies fall 
Um, I do have a couple of questions that have been texted in for you, uh, Joel. But before I get to those, I want to address mm-hmm. the question that I asked you right before we went to news. Yeah. Uh, Turkey is supplying weapons to Ukraine now. Poland yeah. is sending leopard tanks. Uh, Hungary, Turkey and Poland were the members of NATO that seemed to be doing the most right word drifting. Does this mean anything for their own politics at home, do you think? No. Uh, oh, so, okay. All right. <laughs> they, they, uh, one, it's harder to speak about Turkey in this regard uh, and to some respect Hungary. Uh, but for Poland, uh, the difference is stark and difference is clear. Uh, and there's almost universal uh, unanimity that Poland has no interest in, in an aggressive or an expanding Russia. Poland, regardless of its internal politics, left or right, uh, does not want to be allied with, close to, associated with uh, a Russia configured as it is uh, today. Um, Hungary was a little bit less clear. I think economically, politically, uh, strategically, they were sort of interested in that, but but not 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 a Russia that looks like this either. Uh, and so, but Hungary has been much uh, slower to support actions against Russia than than Poland. Uh, from day one, Poland has been Ukraine's uh, most uh, consistent, vociferous supporter, uh, um, and and lobbyists for increased. Uh, military support, uh, lobbying the United States, lobbying Britain, lobbying France. Uh, Poland has, has never wavered on that. Uh, mm. As for the Leopard tanks, uh, you know, what Zelensky has been asking for, the M1A Abrams tanks and uh, Bradley fighting vehicles, and NATO has consistently said no on those. Uh, I will be honest, I'd never heard of Leopard tanks before uh, the last couple of days. Um, uh, Poland has pledged those if, and the if is if other members of NATO also provide tanks and other armored vehicles. Uh, and almost immediately, the other armored vehicles became a yes. Uh, so, but the problem is, is that one um, fleet of these tanks, I believe it, it would be a dozen of the tanks, um, a company of tanks, they call them, uh, it consists of 12 or 14, is not really going to make much of a difference. So they will send them in conjunction with other tanks and armored vehicles coming from NATO. Uh, and, and I would imagine that that's going to happen very, very soon. Hmm. All right. Okay. Well, let me get to the questions that are being texted in then. Uh, somebody oh, wrote in but, that but this in terms of the domestic politics in Poland and Hungary, uh, you know, that particularly Hungary, uh, the EU has been quite stern uh, in in its warnings. Uh, and and Hungary is Hungary's relationship and status in the EU is becoming shakier by the day and as well. It should. Hmm. OK, Um I'm going to I'm going to move on uh, if we need to revisit this and in a few minutes. We can. I want to get some of these questions in. Uh, somebody texted in that they heard that this mercenary group, this Wagner group, uh, they're famous for 
taking the natural resources from an area and the area, this Solidar area where the fighting is now is a famous salt mining area. And they were wondering, could it be that that the that they want to take that resource from that part of Ukraine? And that's why this seemingly otherwise unimportant place is the subject of fighting. Thoughts on that? I think it's the other way around. Uh, So the Wagner group is infamous. Uh, for wanton slaughter, uh, serial rape uh, and murder, uh, and then pillaging and theft in whatever uh, whatever territory that it that it comes across, uh, and that is what it is done throughout this conflict in Ukraine. Wherever they have gone, uh, widespread slaughter. Uh, uh, widespread serial rape uh, and theft and looting and pillaging. Uh, and to be fair, uh, that is not unlike mercenaries uh, throughout human history. Uh, most famously, perhaps, in, in human history, the Roman and Greek mercenary armies. Uh, there are many colorful stories uh, by contemporary Greek historians about the pillaging of of the Greek mercenary armies as they um, march through Persia. So, um, so they have their role models <laughs> and uh, uh, this is quite an ancient human behavior, uh, but, but one that we are unaccustomed to in modern times. Uh, but other than the weapons they use, no one would accuse the Wagner group of being a modern fighting force. Uh, they use quite medieval methods. Yeah. Okay. Um, we have like several more questions for you. One person texted in that I should ask you how close to collapse uh, that you feel Russia is. Yeah, we discussed this every time, right? Uh, about three words, not close enough. <laughs> um, do you think this is that there a year from now we're still going to be? A year from now, we'll still be talking about this. Signs of political. Yeah, there's zero signs of political instability in Russia now, uh, and uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Until huh. there are signs of political instability in Russia, there's no political instability in Russia. Yeah, I guess so. Um, huh? Somebody has also texted in: How is Ukraine's supply of oil and gasoline holding up? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, seemingly, uh, there's some hope. Um, there was a recent deal announced that involved, uh, I want to say, Azerbaijan and Hungary and Turkey and Ukraine uh, for uh, new flows of, of petroleum uh originating presumably from Azerbaijan or maybe even from Kazakhstan, I'm not sure, uh, is a way to circumvent the supplies from Russia, uh, which Ukraine has traditionally relied on. Um, but but there's no doubt that, that across the entirety of, of the territory of Ukraine, um, there are, uh, it would not be an exaggeration to say, catastrophic shortages of uh, all sorts of power, uh, uh, electricity, oil, gas, coal, you name it, nuclear, everything's, everything's uh, in shortage, everything's under threat, everything's under attack by the Russians. 
Uh, someone else texted in, um, how are Russia and Ukraine dealing with COVID? That's something I haven't really read a lot about. Yeah. Uh, it, it tells you something about about the nature of what's going on in Ukraine that of all the problems Ukraine has, COVID's way down on the list. Yeah. Uh, Despite the fact that it seems to Russia, be... I, I, as for Russia, I would imagine not too dissimilar from our situation, right? They have probably a wider uptake of vaccines in Russia than here. Um, and, uh, you know, that I, I would not imagine that you, we don't really hear about much variation anywhere in the world other than China right now uh, on the COVID front. And I don't see why it would be any different in Russia. Um as far as Ukraine, uh, again, vaccination uptake was was practically universal even before the invasion there. Uh, they don't suffer from the kind of uh, conspiracy theory and uh, disinformation, anti-vaxxer nuttiness there that that we are subject to here. Uh, and uh, but but right now, COVID is hardly at the top of the list of concerns for the Ukrainian people. Hmm. Yeah, really. Um, one final question before we go to break. And I'm, um, I don't know about this. So I'm just going to ask you what the person texted in. They want me to ask you about underground tunnels. Um, it says, of what benefit are the underground tunnels to the Russians in the city where they're gaining ground near, it says, Bukrat? I don't know uh, what they mean by that. And I wasn't aware there was a network of underground tunnels. Do you know anything about what this person's referencing? No news to me, but I promise to look into it yeah. for the next time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not. That's that's the first I'm hearing about this. You know, Bukharat has largely been emptied of people. I would imagine of the original resident population in that town, there can't be more than a couple thousand left. Uh, and basically it is fighters on both sides battling for the town. But but that is a town that of of all of the Ukrainian cities that, that we've heard about being uh, completely leveled, uh, what has happened there is, is uh, beyond anything any other part of Ukraine has experienced. And that that includes, uh, you know, Mykolaiv and, and the other towns we heard of over the summer and, and early autumn. Uh, there's really not much left standing there. Uh, and I would imagine that, and I know, you know, the overwhelming majority of the population was evacuated. Uh, and it is hard to imagine that much of that original population is there right now. We have seen, well, we probably should take a break. Um, I'm going to ask you, I want to talk to you about that devastation, <laughs> that devastation that we're seeing in Ukrainian city after Ukrainian city. Um, I'm talking to Professor Joel Ostro. He's a political science professor at Benedictine University. We are going to take a quick break and be back with more right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. 
Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by political science professor Joel Ostro. As you know, he's an expert on Russia and authoritarianism. We um, usually talk about what is going on in Ukraine and what might be happening in the near future and the far future. Toward that end, you and I have talked about this before. The fact that a lot of these cities, after they've been the subject of the Russians take them, the Ukrainians take them back, and we see the pictures and they're yeah. ghost towns filled with rubble. Do you yeah. still believe that Vladimir Putin could care less about that because it's basic territory he's interested in? Do you still think that's the case? Oh, yeah, he could not possibly care less about Ukrainian cities or the Ukrainian people. Uh, he, he'd, he'd prefer that uh, that the Ukrainian people be wiped out and, and you know, Russia... Will will take the land, take the resources, and build what it wants and how it wants. Uh, he doesn't view anything in Ukraine as uh, anything that exists in Ukraine as as a particular value, uh, other than the territory itself for Russia. Uh, it is hard for us to understand the logic of that. Uh, uh, at least any of us who value human life. Uh, culture and civilization, uh, but this is this is an individual and, and a mindset uh, that does not value that at all. One of the, I'm going to I'm going to tap your knowledge here on the area of the authoritarian mindset, the Vladimir Putin's. Mm-hmm. There was a time not so long ago, and I'm sure it'll come again, when Vladimir Putin was hinting that um, he might use tactical nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons more contained to a certain area, um, you know, like somehow that makes them makes them better. And that talk has kind of gone away. And when asked mm-hmm. about it, President Biden won't be specific, but says, you know, we've had conversations and sort of they know how we feel about that. They know mm-hmm. what we will do if that happens. So mm-hmm. I'm asking you, what kind of an argument has caused Vladimir Putin to seemingly back away from that? Does it have to be personal? Like, Vlad, you have no idea how many spies we have in the Kremlin, and I guarantee you you'll be dead 24 hours after that assault. Or is it more like you do that to Ukraine, we will do that to Russia? Is it is it the country that, that is being threatened? What would make the the... Erdogan's and the Vladimir Putin's of the world really back off of something? What kind of a threat? Well, if you're talking about nuclear, uh, let's not lump uh, Erdogan in that. No, no, uh, no. I'm just talking about leadership. No, no, no. (laughs) He's the Turkey's part of NATO and and is 100% with us on on that score. Uh, So for obvious reasons, the nature of uh, the uh, the United States conversations with counterparts in Russia are are intensely classified and secret. Here's what we do know. Uh, That, and I had to go back and check the dates. It was sometime late October, early November. Uh, There was an occasion where uh, the CIA director uh, met with his counterpart, uh, from the FSB in Russia. Uh, I'm not entirely sure where they met. Uh, 
but I think it was at the sidelines of some other uh, conference or meeting. Um, and around the time of that meeting, within a day or two on either side, was when Ukraine demonstrated an ability to strike uh, Russian Air Force Base uh, deep inside Russian territory, uh, a base that uh, harbors long-range nuclear bombers, meaning uh, long-range bombers that carry nuclear bombs on them. Uh, and the precision of that attack was such that um, they destroyed some buildings uh, that contained no nuclear materials. They destroyed some planes that contained no nuclear bombs. And yet there were nuclear, there were planes that did have nuclear bombs loaded and there were buildings with nuclear materials on that same base. It was Ukraine's uh, action. Uh, I firmly believe that sent a very clear message uh, to the Kremlin uh, of capability and intention. Uh, in other words, willingness and capability. They have the capability to strike. They have the capacity to strike Russian nuclear facilities, and they have the willingness to do so in retaliation if that became required. And it was from that date on that the entirety of the tone from Russia, including from President Putin himself, changed. Uh, and it was right after that that Putin uh, said the equivalent of, no, 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 we're never going to, we're not going to use nuclear weapons in this. What do you, what do you think, we're nuts? Or <laughs> our, our understanding of nuclear weapons hasn't changed. Uh, you can go back and look. It, that, that, that is an accurate paraphrasing of exactly what he said in a speech to, intended for uh, foreign audience, not domestic. Uh, and there's been nothing about it since. Uh, we have not heard of any complaints or threats at the Zaporizhia or any other nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Uh, and we're not going to, unless, uh, uh, because either the situation will change on the ground where Russia suddenly triumphs and they won't have a need to do it, uh, or the situation holds it as it is and, and Russia will know that the consequences it will face will be on its own territory. Uh, and it's not that Ukraine will launch nuclear weapons, but they can create the equivalent of a dirty bomb by blowing up facilities where radioactive uh, material is located. They have the intelligence uh, and the ability to guide munitions accurately uh, with, with startling precision. Uh, and, uh, uh, and the assumption accurate has to be uh, throughout Russia's military that Ukraine has intelligence all over the Russian military. Hmm. You mentioned something about, you know, that anything President Biden could say. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago as one possible scenario, Russia just kind of up and wins this. Can NATO really afford to let that happen? I, I don't think it's a realistic scenario at this point uh, because uh, because of the exhaustion of uh, modern uh, artillery and rockets uh, that Russia has experienced and the intense difficulty they will have in replacing those in any uh, realistic time frame uh, due to the uh, maintenance of the Western sanctions against Russia. It's why it was so important to identify alternate uh, energy sources uh, for our European allies. Uh, it wasn't really about <laughs> Europe's energy. It was about uh, the ability to maintain the unity of those sanctions of, of high-tech electrical components that Russia needs in order to be able to uh, to produce more modern uh, 
weaponry that, that they sacrificed in the early stages of this war. Uh, and so the situation on the ground for Ukraine, at worst, is going to remain this kind of a stalemate. Uh, but they are seeking uh, the kinds of weaponry, defensive and uh, counteroffensive, uh, that can help them to, to push Russia back even more uh, and perhaps um, force their hand uh, towards his crying uncle. Uh, I think that that is also pretty far away uh, from being a reality, but it's more likely to go that way than, than a swift Russian victory at this point. That, that's really hard to see that happening. Could you see us being where we are now six months from now? I'd be stunned if we weren't. Oh, It just doesn't seem like this can, it seems like something's got to give. It, you know, well, I mean, we keep talking about. like we'd be here in the first place, Joan. If you go back to February 24th, <sighs> what are the odds that we would be having this conversation, uh, you know, today on January 11th? Uh, and and uh, I never expected that I would be able to, to say that I'd be stunned if, it did, if a stalemate were not indefinite. Uh, but the implications, the consequences of that for the Ukrainian people are are really impossible to accurately convey. Uh, and and uh, how long uh, that country and and that people can can hold up is an enduring question. But but there certainly seems to be no sign of wavering. Uh, and if anything, it's the opposite, that the resolve is stronger. And 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 I think that uh, continuing to have even small victories and pushing Russia back provides a uh, a momentum and, 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 a, and, and a, a fueling of that resolve and an ability to withstand and overcome the hardships that, that clearly are going to continue to build up. Uh, and then it'll be our continued support uh, that will enable them uh, to withstand that uh, and and we need to continue to uh, loudly and, and and in a united way uh, combat the forces in our own country uh, that undermine that because uh, undermining that resolve undermines our own interests uh, and undermining the interests of American democracy is the platform of the Republican Party. Joel, thank you so much for spending an hour with us uh, to talk about this. It's such an important conversation, and I really appreciate you taking the time uh, with me and my listeners. Uh, thank you. The pleasure is all mine, and, and I'm here for you anytime, Joan. Love talking with you. Thank you. Professor Joel Ostro, political science professor with an expertise in Russia, Democratic failure, rise of authoritarianism, um, teaches at Benedictine University. We are going to take a break. You may have heard that there is a new variant. Um, yes, we had Delta. Yes, we had Omicron. Now we have something called XBB.1.5. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that when we come right back after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Listen to the Tom Hartman Radio Program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT820, where facts matter. 
This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There is a new COVID variant that is predominating. It is supposed to be, you know, we say this all the time, highly transmissible, more transmissible than Omicron, which was more transmissible than Delta, which was more transmissible than the original COVID. It is the gift that keeps on giving. I thought it was time. We got an update. I asked uh, University of Illinois Health, Dr. Stockton Mayer, who's a specialist in infectious diseases, to join us and and bring us the latest. First of all, Dr. Mayer, thanks for being here. Hope you had a great holiday and Happy New Year. Thanks. Happy New Year to you. Thanks for having me back. Okay. well, let's let's get into it. XBB 1.5, a seriously romantic name that just trips off the tongue for what is, um, I know there have been a lot of mutations, a lot of variants, but this one seems to be suddenly in the news. Tell It sounds like a droid. Tell me about XBB. It, it is. You know, it, it, it does sound like a little bit of a droid name. And to be honest, I have trouble keeping up with them myself. Uh, you know, to be quite simplistic about it, it is, you know, kind of a descendant of the Omicron variant. Uh, it, it was making up, I think, maybe between 11 and 15 percent of infections not too long ago. And it is now becoming the more predominant strain uh, circulating. Uh, as you mentioned, it seems more transmissible. This this seems to be because it, it binds maybe a little bit more tightly to the cells that it infects. Uh, it's not necessarily more dangerous, but it could cause more infections in people that have had prior infections or prior vaccinations. Is it important if you um, test positive for COVID? Is Does it matter? Should you find out like what strain you have? You know, finding out exactly what strain you have isn't necessarily something that will be commonly done. Uh, typically, you know, the tests that we have to detect COVID will detect all of our strains. And we know, by and large, based on what's circulating, the likelihood of having the, 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 more, the more recent variant. The nice thing is that if you do get sick with a variant, it doesn't, uh, the new variant, it doesn't really quite matter which variant it is because the medications that we have to be able to treat COVID are effective against this variant in the same way they were they are effective against Omicron. So does that mean that the Delta variant, just, are those variants gone? Well, probably just circulating in very low, very low numbers. So the variant that we have right now is circulating in, in much higher numbers. And because it's so transmissible, it's what really kind of drives the um, the infections or the rise in infections that we're seeing now. Okay. Uh, in December, I had COVID for the third time, and I was pretty sanguine about it because I've, you know, I've been there, I've done this, I know what to expect. But it occurs to me now that maybe I was being naive. I mean, if I had a different variant in December than I had had a few months previously, could I have had different symptoms and a different outcome? It may be that you had um, some some very different uh, symptoms. It could be that if you were infected with the the original uh, SARS-CoV-2 that you had loss of taste and smell, we don't see that as much with some of the newer variants. 
it may be that you were very, very sick when you got the very first variant, and then with subsequent infections, you maybe felt less bad. That tends to be uh, a story that I, I hear relatively commonly uh, with subsequent infections. People maybe feel a little bit less worse, although that's not, not the case all of the time. I've had a couple of friends who've gotten really bad symptoms the second time around, and they felt like the second time was worse. So it, it really kind of depends on, on who you are and, and maybe what, at what point you got infected in the, in the pandemic. I thought that when the pandemic first started and COVID was first being studied, they found that if you had a COVID infection, that it wasn't like if you, you know, you get chicken pox and then you pretty much never get it again. That if you got COVID, the protection that your immune system provided waned pretty quickly in a matter of months. Is that still the thinking? Yeah, correct. Correct. And I think that's why you're seeing so many people get um, get reinfected is because the immunity wanes and that coupled with kind of normal changes in an RNA virus, which replicates a little bit more diffi- uh, differently than chicken pox, which is a DNA virus. You know, those things will those things impact, you know, whether or not someone will get sick again um, and how severe that might be. So let's say that if, or perhaps I should say when, I get COVID for the fourth time, should I worry that my symptoms will be different, that my outcome will be different? I think that the good news, if you want to look at it this way, is that with each exposure to either a vaccine or to the virus, you're probably teaching your body how to deal uh, with a coronavirus infection. And your body is smart and it learns. Your immune system is, is really kind of adept at um, establishing immunity and responding to a pathogen it's met before. So I think that you may respond differently uh, to a subsequent infection. Uh, but the good news is, as long as there's not a, a major mutation, meaning an entirely new virus with a spike protein maybe that we haven't seen before, that your, your body's probably going to handle it pretty well. I also saw something that scared me that said that the more often you have COVID, the more likely you are to develop long COVID. Do you see data on that? You know, I'm not as familiar with the data on long COVID, although it is kind of important to note that that things like vaccination tend to be protective against things like long COVID. And it may be that the medications that we're also using to treat COVID have an impact on things like long COVID. And uh, I think that's just another reason to get vaccinated. As I mentioned, it's one thing to get infected with the virus. It's another thing to teach your body how to deal with the virus if you get a vaccine. And that can go a long way to preventing really uh, severe and long-lasting symptoms that, uh, that we're still trying to understand a little bit better. I just saw something that made me uh, feel smart. So um, please don't burst my balloon here. But the very first time that Ray and I, my partner Ray and I had COVID, he tested positive right away. And, you know, and I had I actually had symptoms before him. But day after day, I kept testing negative until the fifth day. I was taking Valtrex at the time, I had felt a cold sore coming on my lip. And uh, so I have this, you know, Valtrex, this antiviral medicine. 
And I said to Ray, I wonder if I'm not turning positive because of the Valtrex. And, you know, we I hadn't read anything on it until recently in one of the health newsletters that I get. Some people are finding that if they take Valtrex, it helps with the symptoms of long COVID. So are you seeing any connection there between this antiviral med that is uh, was created for other causes, maybe ameliorating some of the viral load? You know, I'm not as familiar with some of the data supporting, you know, the, the use of Valtrex for something like COVID and its impact on COVID itself. I think what I would say is that we've had very good success with the medications that are specifically under emergency use for COVID, use for COVID um, probably to a much higher degree than you would see with something like Valtrex. And the nice thing about these medications is that they're, you know, they may, for example, Paxlovid comes with a little bit of a bad taste, but the, the impact can be significant, particularly for people with, with mild to moderate disease at, at very high risk for severe infection. I guess I'm not saying that I think you and I should start touting Valtrex as a treatment for COVID. I'm just wondering, you know, I don't know what is inside a pill that is described as an antiviral med. And I'm just wondering if, you know, a virus is a virus is a virus. And if it makes any kind of logical sense that maybe an antiviral med might have might have made might have kept me from turning positive for five days when I clearly had COVID. Yeah, that's a, a really good a really good question. I would say that we have seen, and, and sometimes it's it, we attribute like the effect to one thing when maybe it's another. With some of these rapid tests, what we've kind of encouraged folks to do is that you know if they feel like they have COVID symptoms, let's say that they're with a partner that tests positive for COVID and they develop symptoms and their test is positive to perhaps go get a, um, a PCR-based test, which are more sensitive, or uh, repeat a test if there's a, a home-based, te- home-based test. Because we have seen, uh, particularly in people that have maybe had uh, vaccination um, and may have a low level, lower level of virus, that these home-based tests may detect a little bit later in the disease course. So it's very difficult to say whether it's just kind of, uh, for example, a, a, an effect of, something like uh, uh, an antiviral versus the, the test itself and, and its limitations. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, an antiviral is not an antiviral, and, and they have different mechanisms of action, and some are general and some are more specific. So there is, I guess, a possibility, but um, I don't want to confuse what may be a, an issue with, let's say, the test versus um, something different. And I have to uh, disagree with you a little bit. You mentioned that uh, Paxlovid has um, a, a kind of a bad taste. Paxlovid is hell on earth. It is <laughs> the nastiest, most vile stuff. Um, it's two pills, by the way. You get a white pill and a pink pill. You take two in the morning. You take two at night. And even I, I got into the habit of filling my mouth with food, throwing the pills so that they hit the back of my throat and swallowing as fast as possible, thinking that that might soften the metallic taste in my mouth. And I would like to tell you, it did not. Even when I didn't taste the pills going down, within 20 minutes or 30 minutes, my mouth tasted 
like I I don't know, like I'd had tailpipes for dinner or something, and the the metallic taste was so bad that it, it sort of made me feel nauseated. Honestly, it reminded me of back when I was doing chemo for uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, that kind of ever-present nausea. I thought it was, I had no idea. You know, I just figured two pills, you know, it's like taking an ibuprofen, right? No big deal. Take the pills, right. feel better. And I've got to tell you, I um, I would th- really think seriously, if and or when I get COVID for the fourth time, I'm going to think real seriously about whether or not I'm going to take that medicine again. I found it to be just, just awful. I think that, that you're highlighting what may be a, a limitation of the, the medication. Uh, the um, It's very effective at reducing symptoms. Uh, in clinical studies uh, and, uh, you know, anecdotally with uh, folks and patients that I know that have, have taken the medication. But a lot of people do report a lot of the symptoms that you just described, and they say it's absolutely gross. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, I would say that your description was probably the most colorful I've heard, uh, but it's uh, it, it is it is a it is it is tough and a limitation. The good news is that if you can tolerate it for five days, the the uh, the taste, the bad taste will, should go away. Um, no, and, when? And when are you saying? When are you predicting? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. The bad taste after two days on Paxlovid. I looked at Ray and I said, Ray. I don't know if I can finish this medicine. I feel mm, yes. so sick to my stomach, and it is a 24-7 nausea. I was very, for some reason, when I did chemo, none of the anti-emetics, none of the anti-nausea meds worked on me. So it was it was day after day, week after week of feeling, you know, 24-7 nausea. And Paxlovid, man, it took me right back to those days. And I, the, your, the only reason I was able to finish it, because I was like, it's five days, Joan. You've got three more days. You can do this. This isn't like before where it's going to be months on end. Just suck it up. Take the medicine. I don't know whether or not it reduced my COVID symptoms because I was so sick from the medicine mm. of the Paxlovid that I'm not sure I would have noticed any COVID symptoms. <laughs> It, that's probably due to the, and I'm sure you 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 probably read, and, and maybe your your physician or provider uh, mentioned this to you, but the ritonavir component is probably the the component within that medication that is uh, responsible for that taste. Can we take that out? Uh, unfortunately, with this medication, you can't. Uh, it's a medication that we've actually been using for decades now. Um, it's one, it originally uses uh, a medication in the fight against HIV. And HIV really? infection, and uh, and we've been able to use it. It's used mostly as a boosting agent to really kind of help increase the levels of the the other medication in there. But it comes with a bad taste, and um, uh, that is a limitation. There are there is another medication that that's used, um, uh, not just Paxlovid. It's called uh, Molnupiravir. And it's uh, also uh, approved under an EUA. And uh, I don't have as much experience with with Paxlovid or with this medication as Paxlovid, uh, but it has similar efficacy um, and maybe less of the the bad taste. That ingredient that you know that makes the bad taste, is there less of it in the other medicine? It's not in the other medicine. 
It's not in the other medicine? It's not in the other medicine. What's the name of this other one then for when I get my fourth COVID? Monopiravir. Monopiravir. Okay, I've written that down. I'm going to save that. I'm going to tell my doctor that I'm either going to tough it out or I get monopiravir. Uh, We need to take a break. I'm talking to infectious disease specialist, Dr. Stockton Meyer, Stockton Mayer with the University of Illinois Health Systems. I have more COVID questions right after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away, 773-763-9278. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Dr. Stockton Mayer. He's with the University of Illinois Health Systems. He's a specialist in infectious diseases and our COVID expert. Recently, uh, internationally, the wastewater from a lot of airplanes were the wastewater was tested for COVID, you know, because they say if they it like at water treatment plants, if they test for COVID, they'll see an uptick in the virus at the water treatment plants before they see it in the population and in the hospital admissions. This organization found 96% of the flights tested had COVID in their wastewater. I saw that the CDC announced recently that on the basis of these results that they are going to consider testing the wastewater of planes in the United States. Were you surprised by that figure? And does that mean we're going to be seeing another huge COVID wave? You know, I'm not really surprised by that figure. I think that what's you know, we've been doing wastewater testing uh, for a long time now uh, as ways to detect outbreaks uh, and detect um, the um, uh, spikes in disease in specific communities. I think specifically of, of the jail um, and using it in those settings to be able to detect whether or not there's a there's an outbreak there. Uh, but we have been using it with uh, with airplanes. Uh, we've actually, I think here in the city of Chicago, we're also doing it uh, at the airport itself. And these are other kind of ways to detect um, uh, COVID, but also uh, through gene sequencing, maybe new variants uh, that may be of particular interest and that may cause rises in infection. So uh, these surveillance programs, I think, are really cool uh, because I think that there's potential to allow us to get ahead of things a little bit. Um, so, one of the, uh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so since we're getting these results, how do we get ahead of this? What does that mean? Well, it would detect a, maybe a new variant or a different variant that's circulating. And, and if, if you know that there's a, a different variant, you can uh, study it and you can detect exactly how transmissible it might be, um, how it, uh, it infects cells and may evade the immune system. So, you know, I think that that added knowledge can be very beneficial in kind of maybe predicting uh, another wave, uh, whether resources need to be uh, focused in a specific area, uh, depending on the virus. Uh, so I think a lot of this stuff is, is really cool applications of technology. So I've been seeing that um, 
China seems to be in really bad straits right now with COVID. But correct me if I'm wrong, didn't they develop their own vaccine? And isn't it considered by the rest of the world to be not very effective? Well, I think that there are uh, a lot of concerns about uh, what's happening in China right now and its impact on uh, the United States and the rest of the world. And I think that there is uh, certainly uh, one of the reasons that uh, travelers from China are required to have negative COVID tests before they come in and why uh, wastewater may be tested and planes coming from China is just kind of understanding uh, what exactly is going on there? Because we don't have a great picture about the extent of, of and burden of disease there because of limited knowledge sharing. So those things uh, really kind of make interpretation of what's going on in, in China a little bit difficult. Uh, but our public health experts are really kind of working hard to understand a little bit better through some of these different public health measures that we just talked about, wastewater testing, plane testing, traveler surveillance programs, et cetera. Also, we do have a new vaccine out. It is, I, I don't know what officially what you guys call it. We call it the bivalent vaccine because it was supposed to have uh, extra special goodness in it for Omicron. Does that mean that extra special goodness will be good for XBB? Well, you know, I think one of the things that makes uh, XBB similar to some of the other variants is that, that it will evade the immune system. And so you can get reinfected. You're protected from the vaccine from severe infection, but you can get infected with XBB. The impact of the vaccine is, is really, and I think what we really need to concentrate on is the severity of disease. And that's why it's important things like getting the, the, the booster that includes the, the Omicron variant uh, are so important. Because what you really want, particularly for high-risk folks, is to, to avoid the severe disease. When I uh, posted on social media that I had COVID for the third time, one of uh, my followers was texted to me, well, I guess that means you're not going to be, you know, talking up vaccines anymore. And I responded, I was like, are you kidding me? I had, I've had COVID three times. Never once have I been anywhere close enough sick to even go to the ER, let alone be hospitalized, let alone be on a ventilator, let alone die. I am the utmost believer in vaccines. You you come out, Dr. Mayor, with a new vaccine. You come out with a new vaccine tomorrow. I'm going to be at your office the day after tomorrow to get it. I think that I'm a testament to the efficacy of vaccines. I think that's 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 great. I am, as, as you can probably imagine, a huge supporter of vaccines as well. I, the thing I like about vaccines, is, and I alluded to this earlier, is that it is a great education for your immune system. It teaches your body how to respond to a, uh, to a pathogen and how to, to take care of it effectively. Uh, and I love the fact that it's showing the body how to respond and allowing the body to respond itself. And I think that that is so cool. And um, uh, it's one of the neat things, uh, I think, it, about the vaccines that make it maybe different from a medication um, it, it certainly some vaccines come with side effects, but certainly the, uh, most people don't report a five day nasty taste in their mouth with, uh, with a vaccine. Mm-hmm. No, a little bit of a sore arm, but I've not had any super bad problems with the vaccine. You know, I kind of hoped that by now 
we would have put most of the anti-vax craziness behind us. But I don't know if you if you followed this when that football player, Damar Hamlin, was recently injured. I guess he had a cardiac cardiac arrest on the field within like 24 hours. There were people posting on social media that it was something to do with covid vaccines. When are we ever going to get past all this craziness? I don't know if we will. Um, you know, these uh, vaccine hesitancy has been something that's been around for a long time. Uh, and we were dealing with this with vaccine preventable diseases even before COVID. Uh, one of the reasons we would see things like spikes in measles cases is because folks were hesitant about giving their uh, children measles vaccines. So, you know, misinformation has been around for a long time. I think it's really just important that we increase our communication and and try and dispel some of these rumors that are that, that circulate. It's very hard to do, and sometimes as a as a health professional, it's it's pretty frustrating. Uh, but it is something that that we've been dealing with for for quite a long time, and I think we'll deal with for for quite a while more. Are you ever out in public, and somebody who may or may not know what you do for a living says something to you about? you know, not being able to trust vaccines or that the vaccines are dangerous or that they're not going to get them. Have you been in a situation like that? And if so, how do you handle it? You know, we have those discussions with patients every day. Uh, And I think that, uh, and, you know, personally, I've had discussions with friends and and family members uh, on a regular basis. These are things I think that all health uh, professionals are are, are pretty skilled at, at dealing with. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is, is just, you know, uh, approaching it with a nonjudgmental attitude, uh, understanding that, that it, uh, the opinions are often shaped by information and where it's coming from, uh, and providing an alternative uh, information or, or resource on a continuous basis is, is kind of part of my job as a, as a health professional and also a, a friend. So, you know, I continue to have conversations with people. Um, about vaccines. I continue to present, you know, new uh, interesting data. Uh, I continue to maybe share with them why the information that they're presenting isn't necessarily um, maybe the best for them. And, and we, we have those, we have those conversations. So I think that, you know, in, in summary, I, I don't get frustrated um, I continue to have open conversations and, you know, we all kind of have our, our own kind of path towards, towards health. And, and, and my job is really to kind of help facilitate that, that journey, uh, no matter how long it takes. Well, I appreciate that you help facilitate that journey with us here. Thank you for all of the good information that you bring to me and my listeners all the time. I, I thank you for your time. Always a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, that's Dr. Stockton Mayer. He's with the University of Illinois Health uh, Center's um, expert in infectious disease. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with politics right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. 
The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. My good friend David Lehman is a longtime newsman. He's worked all over the country. He currently lives in Rhode Island, where he uh, does occasional political and other news commentary for the local PBS station. And um, I consider him uh, pretty much our East Coast kind of correspondent. So um, we're going to be asking him about, you know, things like how he let George Santos get elected and and other uh, questions of the day. First, I want to say hello, David, and I hope you had a great new year. Hi, Joan. Yes, had a great time. I hope you did, too. Uh, we have, uh, I've got two daughters, uh, or we have two daughters uh, in their mid-20s. And, uh, they were home, one from Holland, the other from San, uh, San Diego. So we had a great time. How oh, that's you? wonderful. That's wonderful. We had uh, we had kind of a quiet time um, a couple of weeks before uh, the holidays kicked in. Ray and I both got covid. So we had to kind of shut down our our social calendar for a bit and, uh, you know, did what we could. But it was still it was still wonderful. And we got to see a lot of family as as well. So uh, so I'm glad that the holidays were great now that we are in 2023. How on earth did you let George Santos get elected to Congress? I mean, who 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 was in charge here? Who was in charge? By the way, did you know that he's also Batman? I just was reading this today that he's actually Batman and he's an astronaut and uh, he's also a farmer from Iowa. Did you know that? Well, uh, actually, if you combine two of those, you could say he's uh, back-assed. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I, couldn't, I couldn't resist that. Uh, boy, you know, I, one of the things I have to question is how in the world did the local journalists not um, pursue this uh, as energetically as they should have? At the time, now, I understand there was some coverage. Obviously, this is in, in New York State, uh, but uh, I, I, I think there's got to be a lot of embarrassed uh, investigative reporters who uh, are sitting there going, hmm, ha, hmm, how did I miss that? Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because it was the, the Long Island News that did this article saying we're not going to endorse this guy because he's a fraud. And the editor, after after the extent of the fraud became known, people were talking and calling the editor. And he said, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, we, yeah, we're a small outlet, but 10 or 20 years ago, if we had done a story like that, my phone would have been ringing off the hook. Local TV stations and some, you know, because it is New York, you know, mainstream media. He said, we published this story basically saying that this guy was a fraud. And he said, I didn't get a call from anybody. It's, wow. It's, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That is amazing. I mean, this is so embarrassing. I mean, uh, and, and it was really embarrassing after you get over the original Story, or not the original, but the follow-up stories about everything he has lied about. Everything. You just, 
I mean, everything. You just wonder how in the world can the Republican majority in the House, how can they not? Now, I know today there's been an effort to uh, by some to uh, send a letter to demand his resignation. But look how long that took. Holy you know, smoke. I, you know, the guy has a right to, to tell his side of the story, but his side of the story is so weak, say, well, there were some exaggerations that I admit to. Exaggerations, they're called lies. He essentially created a person out of whole cloth. There isn't one aspect of life, work history, school history, family history, religious affiliation. There's not one of those things he didn't lie about. It's just it's just incredible. You know, uh, the, uh, the the Republicans uh, have taken out the uh, the various uh, security devices uh, for people coming and going there. If I were a Republican, I would demand that we put them back in to protect us from this guy. He might walk in someday with a gun and and you know do the uh, do the spray uh, shooting and and take out a lot of his colleagues. I mean, this guy is a dangerous guy. I mean, I. I would want all the security in the world if I were in that chamber after what we saw two years ago on January the 6th. Well, you know, Nassau County Republicans have come out publicly, two or three of them today, to say that this guy's an embarrassment. They said he's not welcome as part of our party. He can't come to any of our meetings. We don't acknowledge him. We think he should resign. But not a word from Kevin McCarthy, not a word from Steve Scalise. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, let's face it, he can't afford to alienate anybody, even a lunatic like George Santos. Uh, it, it's just absolutely amazing to me. And, and you know, uh, Kevin is going to find out, I think, uh, in, in not too long a time that he really ha- is, uh, has created a monster with all of the concessions that he has made to the Republicans, uh, the, the 20 Republican holdouts. Uh, you know, he is going to have no power at all. He's going to have to spend all of his time running around being the diplomat to get anything done uh, with some of these people. Because if some of these people defect on some of the measures that he wants, now, a lot of them are probably not going to do that. They'll probably go along with it because they, they tend to be pretty radical. But he can't, he can't afford to have any defections if he does. Uh, you know, he's, he'll be back down to uh, to losing uh, bills and so forth that he'd like to see or he's going to push to see uh, go through. I mean, this is he's built a house of cards, I'll tell you. Some people are predicting that he will be the shortest speaker in the history of the country since, among other things, he's agreed to the fact that it only takes one member of Congress to call for a vote of no confidence and, you know, um, assuming that every Democrat uh, will vote t- no confidence, you know, I mean, he he's got to hang on to a very slim margin for for victory in these votes. I mean, he can't afford to make Matt Gates or Lauren, Lauren Boebert mad. Uh, it's just right. <sighs> Do you think it was all I mean, some people say that he really, really just wanted to be speaker, not for any reason that it's just he wanted to be speaker. He wanted to go into the history books like that. He wanted to have that portrait of him painted and hanging up somewhere. 
So I guess he got what he wanted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I came to the same conclusion. He was so desperate to do this. He wasn't desperate to get things done. This was an ego trip for him, something that he's been on for a long time. And I look, you know, the folks in Washington, most of them are really, really ambitious. And if you're in the House of Representatives, very often your ambitions go beyond the House. You want to, some of them would go, like to go on to be president, but many of them want to go on to be in the Senate because it's the upper chamber. Uh-huh. And for, for this guy, uh, I think he's, uh, now I'll tell you, the House Speaker, uh, I, I know here in Rhode Island with the General Assembly, the House Speaker is more powerful than the governor. He has all the powers here. That's just the way it's structured. But in the House, U.S. House of Representatives, it's almost the same thing because a lot of people don't know some of the uh, some of the machinations, uh, legal machinations that separate one house from the other. But spending bills begin in the House. Uh, the budget gets worked on in the House. Now, it's got to be approved by the Senate. But by and large, if you want to get something for your district. It's got to, you know, the House has got to approve it or you're, or you're just not going to get it done. And so that's why it's so important. And the Speaker traditionally has been, you know, really probably the most powerful among equals there. This guy is going to find that he, because of what he's done, is, has found his power usurped by 20 people, 15 people. It doesn't take very many because of the slim majority. Yeah. I want to, uh, we need to take a real quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about that power or lack thereof. And, you know, probably the, you know, he's, I think he's going to let a lot of the crazies, you know, run their bills. Oh, we're going to cut this. We're going to cut that. He knows the Senate's not going to agree. He knows Biden's not going to sign it. So, you know, God love them. Let them have their little wacky bills. But one thing where I think we are going to run into a real brick wall is with uh, the discussions about and the vote on raising the debt ceiling. We're going to take a real quick break. I'm talking to longtime um, newsman David Lehman. We're going to continue this discussion right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by longtime newsman uh, David Lehman. He is based in Rhode Island. And since we couldn't get him to take responsibility for George Santos, we moved on to talking about... This new House of Representatives led by led. Can we even say that? Is he really leading Kevin McCarthy? Is he leading the House of Representatives or is he kind of just following along and 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 letting the wind carry him hither and thither? Um, I think he's going to let he's leading from behind. Yes, that's exactly it. Good, good description. Um, I think he's for the most part going to let the crazies do as much as they can do and to make themselves happy knowing that there's really not going to be any end result from it. But the one thing of importance that is coming up and could seriously derail us 
is the vote to increase the debt ceiling. And if we as a country don't vote to increase the debt ceiling, then it affects um, the borrowing and lending. Long story short, pretty much the whole government comes to a screeching halt. Soldiers don't get paid. I mean, it isn't just bureaucrats in Washington who are going to have to deal with this. There are going to be a lot of real world consequences if this happens. And the way I see this Congress right now, I don't think that there's I think we are going to see the first government shutdown over this in maybe I maybe in our history. Do you think that they can come to an agreement? You know, I think. When some of the haze gets removed from the current time in the wake of what's happened in Washington the last week or so, uh, I think cooler heads are going to have to prevail. Let me tell you why. Uh, If the debt ceiling is not increased and we end up uh, doing some of what you've said or hits the economy, think about this. We've already got an economy that's heading into a recession. People disagree about whether it's going to be a severe recession or whether it's going to be mild. But almost universally, economists say we're going to go into some sort of a a recession. If you couple that with all of these other hand grenades that are going to to bang up the economy even worse, what you're going to have is you're going to have an economy that's going to go reeling. And then the finger-pointing will begin again as to whose fault it is. And I I want to take you back to something I think I said to you some time ago on one of my appearances on your show. People say, how in the hell did we ever get in this situation? Trump as president, the Republicans acting like like nihilists, not even like, you know, traditional Republicans, which also had some merit. They they. It's a value having two two parties that, that don't always agree on things. I've often thought. And my, this is my theory, that a, a lot of what delivered Donald Trump to the American public, aside from racism and things like that, was the fact that the American public has been frustrated with the U.S. Congress or, quote unquote, the federal government. They've been fed up for a long time. If you think back two Congresses ago, I believe it was the least productive Congress in modern history. They got nothing passed. They literally did nothing. They still got their $177,000 a year, but they, they did nothing. And the public, as much as they don't pay attention to some of this stuff, they did pay attention to that. And it's really been going on for years and it's been building. But that do-nothing Congress from a couple of Congresses ago, I think sealed the deal. We need somebody who's going to shake this place up. Donald Trump promised to do that, and did he ever, but not for the good. If that happens again, you know, I think full faith in government will be, will literally be gone, even by many of the people who still hold the government of the people, by the people, and for the people, can be very helpful in, in our lives and needed in our lives. I think that the faith in our government is going to further rescind and that is going to be, I think, could be the worst outcome. It will be even worse than what it is now. And the economy, people will be either out of work, they won't be able to pay their bills. I mean, you, you're talking, I think, potentially about 
you know, and I don't want to be an alarmist here. I'm not an alarmist by nature anyway. But I, I think you've got a, you've got a real, real battle here that could end up imploding on the U.S. government as fragile as it is right now. I hope I'm wrong. There is supposedly this group of Republicans who are, well, at least compared to the Boberts of the world, they're considered more middle of the road and moderate. They've uh, given themselves the name, they're the Main Street. I can't remember if they call themselves Main Street Committee or Main Street Coalition. And these were the ones that were grumbling behind the scenes that they were not going to allow Kevin McCarthy to allow the radicals to control what happens in Congress. And yet... And yet, so far, they have been very quiet. And if they have done any foot stomping, it has certainly not been in the public eye. They've done what I've seen Republicans who aren't crazy do for far too long now, which is protest that they're not going to be led by the crazies, protest that they're not going to let the crazies get the upper hand, and then they go quiet. So I don't know if if these people do you think there's a chance that this main street group will suddenly find that they have spines and not stand for this? Because if you're right and if this sort of chaos reigns, that's not going to stand them in good stead in 2024. People are going to see the Republicans as the party in chaos and the independents and the middle of the rotors are going to vote Democrat. Yeah, except. And I, this is going to be the second stage of my comments. Uh, it is going to be in every, you know, people who don't follow civics, uh, you know, arduously. But House of Representatives is unique from, from the Senate. The senators get voted in for six-year terms. Uh, they have a little leeway with what they do, what they say, and how they act, and, and, and what they pass. The Congress... 435 congressmen and women every two years have to face the voters. It's the way it was designed from the very beginning. They have to be the immediately responsive house of government. These guys and women, if they end up getting into a whiplash over a recession, and then if, if, the, uh, if the budget uh, issue isn't, isn't resolved, if that collapses, people are going to look to blame somebody. And the easiest person to blame is the congressman or congress lady who comes knocking at your door or calls you for support or calls you for money. They're going to say, I'm throwing this person out. Whatever it is, I agreed with some of what they did, but they look at the mess we're in. Let's just throw them all out. I mean, I think there's a big risk for every most every congressman, whether a Republican or Democrat. But I think that's why I said at the beginning, I think cooler heads may prevail, in, at least in the margins, enough to save us from getting into this catastrophic event that I think very easily could come to pass because the timing would be awful. A recession with a budget stalemate, payments not made, uh, Medicare payments, Social Security payments. I'll tell you what, you start fiddling with that, you're going to find people are going to be so activated, more so than they have been the last five years. Uh-huh. Especially us old farts, because we, we get mad and we vote in huge numbers, and they ignore us at their peril, which is why I'm so 
a surprise to see even like a Ron Johnson from Wisconsin talk about, well, you know, maybe we ought to vote all the time every year to have to renew Social Security. Other people talking about privatizing it. Other people talking about cutting it like it is some kind of handout, like it's welfare. That um, that really puzzles me because that seems to be alienating an awful lot of voters. Well, the first argument that the voters are going to say is, you want to you want to consider withholding Social Security every year or on a frequent basis? That's my money. I mm-hmm. give you this. You're not giving me that. I earned that. You took money out of my paycheck for 45 years. That's my money. How dare you consider taking that money away from me? I mean that that is a fool's errand of, of the highest order. It's just amazing to me. And I'll tell you what. If I'm a Democratic strategist, I've got to be sitting back thinking, you know what? (laughs) The old saying, if your enemy is killing himself, whatever you do, don't interfere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, we we, will need to take a break in a few seconds. But along those same lines, they're they're trying to kind of walk it back. But there have been a few Republicans in Congress who've also said, and you know what? And we're going to look at that defense budget. Oh, oh, no. Oh, no, I'm not going to cut the military. That isn't what I meant by looking at that defense budget. I meant like the extra stuff, like, you know, like Ukraine, because that's so unpopular. I don't know. It just seems to me that that we have not only a, a lot of Republicans who are really far right, but who seem to be out of touch with the kind of positions that are potentially going to get them reelected. Anyway, uh, David Lehman and I are going to take a break. We're going to be back uh, in just a few seconds after this. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. Is Joan Esposito live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820? And I'm joined by longtime newsman David Lehman. Um, we um, have been talking about government. I'd like to switch gears a little bit. You talked about how the people who uh, run for office, and particularly the people who are elected, tend to be really, really ambitious. What do you think of California Congresswoman Katie Porter making her announcement this week that she wants to, in 2024, run for Senate from California, carefully not mentioning that it's Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat that she wants to run for? What do you think of all that? That's not something that uh, that most politicians will do to somebody in their own party, especially somebody like Feinstein, who's been been around for, uh, gosh, I don't know what, 40, 50 years. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's not been that long. It just seems like that. But, uh, one thought that I had was that she may have some inside information that Dianne Feinstein, because she's going to be in her 90s, I think, uh-huh. Uh, maybe ninety now. Uh, she, she may have uh, may have some inside information that she is not going to run, and she wants to be the first one out the gate uh, to uh, to you know establish the beachhead and uh, be the person to beat. Uh, there's there's nothing wrong with politically uh, as a political strategist. There's nothing wrong with getting out there first. It usually helps you. 
If, however, you drive too hard, too long, you're liable to peak about a month or six months early, and then you kind of fall apart. So there's a danger in being the first one out. But you know what? That seed, you know, California is 700 miles long. It's uh, it's a huge state. And, you know, you know, Rhode Island has two senators. California has just two senators. So it's a it's a political plum of the first order. So the first one out the gate may end up having the advantage unless she, she slips up. Well, there's also been some questions about uh, the current senator's health. Maybe Katie Porter wanted to get her name out there because if for some reason Diane Feinstein steps back or, God forbid, becomes medically unable to continue, Gavin Newsom would be in the position to fill that seat. And uh, he now knows quite publicly who who wants it, though there have been some rumors that um, Adam Schiff and uh, somebody else whose name escapes me have also been making like private inquiries about, you know, whether or not they would be considered viable candidates for that seat. Well, Adam Schiff, it, it, uh, to me, is is one of the most articulate people in Washington. Uh, he, uh, I happen to agree with a lot of his positions, so uh, perhaps that influences my view of him. But I think he's articulate. I think he is smart. He's ambitious. He never met a TV camera. He didn't fall in love <laughs> or be available to. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, yeah, as, a, as a former journalist, I love the people you know, want to be on the record. And if you're on the camera, you're on the record. Uh, it would be very surprising to me that, it, that that he would not be one of the first to jump in there unless he's got some kind of a deal with Gavin Newsom, because Gavin Newsom, I think, from everything that I've read over the last few months, uh, it has his eye on that. I don't think he wants to be governor of the state. Uh, for, for well, he's, ter- he's term limiting out. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and, and I, I didn't factor that into what I just said, but you're right. So he he wants a place to go. <laughs> there aren't many places to go, in, in uh, you know, in uh, well, he can run for president too. I mean, that's the other story about it. That he's he's looking at, at a run for president if Joe Biden uh, decides not to run, or if he if he just doesn't carry the water the way he needs to as president and, and leader of the Democratic Party. And so I, I and I think Newsom is a is a is a pretty good candidate from what I've seen. I, I've not studied him terribly, but you know, he's got he's articulate, you know, he's got the looks and all of that, which always helps. So it, that would be a very interesting race if she doesn't run. If she does run, I guess it'll still be an interesting race. Well, I was talking the, earlier this week to a friend of mine who's a former deputy bureau chief for CBS News in L.A., and I said to him, you know, would it be possible if if Dianne Feinstein stepped away that Gavin Newsom would appoint himself? And they said, you know, I mean, I guess he could theoretically do it, but his take on it was that Gavin Newsom wanted a bigger stage uh, even than the Senate, uh, the implication yeah. being that if the opportunity presented itself, that definitely a presidential run in 2024. And you've got to admit, you know, he has spent a strange amount of time 
trolling Ron DeSantis on social media. Like the two of them have been maybe not in the last few months, but for a while there, they were really going at one another, which um, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, well, you know, that's an easy fight to win in in some ways, uh, especially in California. Uh, California obviously has some conservative pockets uh, uh, in uh, uh, Santa Ana, uh, uh, what is it, uh, just south of, uh, of L.A. It's a very conservative belt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think California overall, uh, you'd have to say, was a, a democratic state, and uh, uh, and so he would have he would have a lot of people eating up whatever he might say about Ron DeSantis. And from my my perspective, for good reason, because Ron DeSantis is is kind of a Trump light, if you will. Um, but some people consider him more dangerous because he's smarter. I haven't listened to a lot of Ron DeSantis's speeches. I don't know if you have, but I've read that some people have said, you know, Republicans better be careful what they wish for, because some of the reporters who have been following him say that, you know, you know, this guy might might be attractive, but he is by no means charismatic. He is by no means an orator and probably uh, the worst thing that could happen for the Republican Party would be for Ron DeSantis to try to step out on the national stage. Do you know anything about that? Have you listened to any of his speeches? Oh, I've, I've listened to clips and so forth. Uh, I have a, a good friend of mine in the uh, Miami uh, media who uh, does commentary and, uh, and follows uh, DeSantis. I was talking to him uh, about a month and a half ago. Uh, he's from Rhode Island, and then he and I have been friends for a long time. And we had lunch, and I was asking him about DeSantis. Uh, he's he, He's an editorial writer, so he comes with uh, with interesting credentials. And he said, uh, Ron DeSantis is uh, is a very very smart guy. Uh, he is in, he, he just in a certain way. He said, and he's sort of dangerous because of that. And I don't remember all of what he told me, but he said. DeSantis is uh, he is a really good political strategist. He knows what he's doing, uh, even if you don't like what he's doing. He knows what he's doing, and he wouldn't get himself into traps like Trump did because he was running his mouth all the time. DeSantis does hold news conferences and things like that, but he, he doesn't have the same need for that attention that uh, Donald Trump has. And Trump, you know, he just runs his mouth, runs his mouth, says stupid things. Uh, you know, he later denies he said it, and somebody pulls up the video <laughs> of the piece and says, yeah, yeah you did say mm-hmm. that. Well, you took me out of context. No, here's the context. So, mm-hmm. uh, DeSantis, uh, he told me, and I'm just taking his word for it, because he's covered Florida politics for, for, for decades, and he said Ron DeSantis is, is somebody who is a, a really calculated guy, and he's dangerous because he will do things that probably even Trump might not do. But before you know it, it's done. And uh, and he will have done the po- political calculations that what he's doing uh, is going to be accepted or will be accepted by enough people. So uh, that's my roundabout way of saying that uh, that somebody who covers him and writes about him 
uh, considers him to be a, a fairly dangerous politician because he is a lot smarter than Trump and is a good political strategist. Hmm. Speaking of Donald Trump, he declared his candidacy and then is seems to have pretty much gone silent. I don't know if you saw that. I can't remember if it was New York Magazine or The New Yorker. I think it was New York Magazine did that cover of him sitting alone. And it was like table for one about how isolated he is and about how he doesn't seem to be, you know, getting any kind of momentum. Not that he necessarily seems to be going after it. What do you think of his candidacy so far? Uh what I've read and heard is that Donald Trump is in a big depression. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't have a lot of people around because so many of them are under investigation and their lawyers have probably told them, don't talk to this guy. I don't care if you're a best friend. I don't care if he appointed you to, to you know, secretary of this or secretary of that. Don't talk to the guy because, it, you know, uh, you're, you're at your own peril. If you engage with him, because what Donald Trump is going to want from you is something that's good for him, which may not be good for you. So, uh, you know, attorneys, when they've got people under investigation, they'll tell them, don't talk to any of the people you associated with. If you do, it'll look like you're, you're colluding on telling the truth and things like that. Or they'll use something you told them to get themselves out of hot water and put you deeper into the hot water. So, um uh, you know, Donald Trump, I mean, I saw the same thing happen up here. We had a controversial mayor, a fellow by the name of Buddy Cianci, and uh, he was a charismatic guy, funny as hell, and, and, and but just the biggest crook and, and the biggest you know, chameleon you could ever find. He ended up serving uh, 10 years in prison. But uh, the funny thing about him was it was the same thing with Trump. He had always had this retinue of people following him around. He he had this entourage that, that traveled with him and all of that. And toward, when he got into real deep trouble with the feds, he would be seen at, at one of his favorite bars drinking alone, reaching out to people so he wouldn't be sitting there alone. And this guy being alone, he always had the entourage, you know, yeah. the sycophants uh, and so forth. And I think Donald Trump, frankly, is probably mirroring that a bit. Uh, the only difference is Donald Trump has a national constituency. Buddy Cianci didn't. Uh, but if you got a national constituency and people are still in your cult, uh, they're liable to, you know, to forget what I just said and, and you know, hang out with you. But I think Donald Trump is really realizing he's running running out of cards. I mean, I predicted uh, on, on PBS um, – a week ago, that uh, that he was going to end up uh, charged this year, potentially within the month, and before it's all over, he's going to be in an orange jumpsuit. And a lot of people think I'm I'm not not on the mark with that. Uh, but I and I've said that to you, I think, on your show. Mm-hmm. He's in deep deep trouble, and uh, I don't think he's got a way out. I think you're half right with that. I definitely think he's going to be indicted. And even though he will drag his feet legally, eventually he will go to trial. I'm not sure whether he would ever be convicted, but I don't think that that's important. I think that to establish the precedent that nobody is above the law, I think the indictment and bringing him to trial does that so that in the future we won't get 
uh, a president who feels that they are untouchable because of what has happened before. But we need to take a break. We can continue this talk. I also want to talk to you about um, Mike Lundell, the my pillow guy going after Ronna McDaniel's job as head of the Republican uh, Party. I think that's pretty interesting. We'll be back with more right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by longtime newsman David Lehman. He's now based in Rhode Island and contributes commentary uh, to the PBS station there. And we get together periodically pretty much to solve the world's problems, which we're very good at, and uh, comment on some of the more absurd things going on in politics, which has to include Mike Lundell uh, wanting to kick Ronna McDaniel to the curb as the leader of the Republicans, um, and uh, oddly enough, when I first heard it, I was like, oh, ha, ha, yeah, that's funny. And he's getting some traction, which kind of uh, surprises me. Um, I, I think this is just a fool's errand. I, I don't think he's going to go anywhere with this. Think about this. First of all, the guy is a joke. He comes off as a buffoon. Um, he, you know, his his keys to the kingdom have come through Donald Trump, and Trump has not said anything yet publicly about whether he would support Lindell's efforts to take over the, the Republican Party. Uh, Donald Trump is, you know, even though he still has uh, uh, still has people who support him, he's getting to be yesterday's news, and when he becomes yesterday's news. Mike Lindell will crumble, fall, and burn because nobody's going to pay much attention to him. He's just a joke, and I think I think any any thoughtful discussion about this is going to end up with the guy really doesn't have a chance because the party, as more stuff comes out about Donald Trump, and this goes with other people who have been associated with him, as more stuff comes out about Trump, if he gets indicted, which I think he's going to be, he'll be, I think he'll be indicted, as I said earlier. Uh, and other people, you know, look, Trump's financial guy, you know, Alan Weisenberg, is is over, you know, in Rikers Island in prison. I mean, you know, you don't need to describe the decay that's going on around Donald Trump. The Republicans don't like Trump. You understand that. I mean, you clearly understand that. They put up with him because they're scared to death that he'll take them out in a in an election or he'll he'll beat them up, and, and he's not above doing that. Mm-hmm. So along with him, but the more he, the more he gets tarnished, and the more stuff comes out about him. When when you read that Donald that that uh, the, the janitor at your local high school paid more taxes than Donald Trump did uh, over a period of a year or two, uh, you know. That resonates with Republicans and Democrats, and and I would think that it would resonate with a lot of Republicans who who really don't like Trump, but they they, they don't know what to do with him. They just hope he's going to flame out. And with the help of federal prosecutors and state prosecutors and, and New York, 
he's probably going to flame out and in Georgia as well. So uh, the more he gets tarnished, uh, you know, Mike Lindell, he, he better keep his pillow job. Yeah, let's hope so. You mentioned Alan Weisselberg, the CFO of the Trump Organization, yeah. who has been sentenced to five months at Rikers Island for tax fraud. And what I'm waiting for, when he was first charged, because supposedly, you know, he was getting all these perks that should have counted as income and they weren't being counted as income, things like, you know, uh, private tuition for his grandkids and cars and at least one apartment. At the time those charges were first brought, it was pointed out that Ivanka got a lot of those same perks from the Trump organization. He has now, Mike, or Alan Weisselberg has now been found guilty of tax fraud for not paying taxes on this income of a sort. When do you think we're going to hear about the indictment for Ivanka? That I don't know, because I haven't heard her uh, mentioned except occasionally in passing uh, almost, uh, almost, uh, you know, could it be, I, I, I don't know what they have, have with her, but boy, I'll tell you what, this whole thing, this whole mess is really, really ugly. And, uh, I, I will tell you, Joan, I was really disappointed with the, uh, Weisselberg, uh, the way that was handled. They had this son of a gun, you know, you know, they had, a, they had his neck against the wall. And they, they went out and they, they traded. He said he would not testify about Trump at all. And they went along with that. They had a strong case against this guy. I think the feds blew it big time. I thought it was shameful. They should have taken the risk of him getting off by going after him and demanding uh, that, that, uh, that he answer questions about Trump. And if not, no plea deal, buddy. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna hang you out to dry, and, and and the feds will talk to you this way. We're gonna hang you out to dry. You're gonna wish you had never seen us or seen Donald Trump. We're gonna we're gonna break you. That's the way they talk when they're trying to get a, a deal done uh, with uh, somebody that they it's a target of their investigation. I just was so so disappointed with the way they handled that. If you think about it, he got off essentially for a while, $1.6 million. And he's going to serve, he's got to pay some of that back or already has paid a couple of million back, I think. But look at all the money he probably stole in the meantime uh, through this organization. And remember, he started off with Donald's father. So this guy's been probably been on the take for, for a long, long time. And how do you feel if you're a person of color and you got you were in a Seven Eleven, and you were stealing something, and they put you behind bars for a year for for theft. How do you equate that with a with a white collar crime like this guy had multiple crimes, and he's going to serve three months by the time the good behavior is thrown in? He'll be out in a hundred days, actually ninety nine counting today or counting yesterday. I just think this is. When people talk about social justice, boy, they they have got this right on on the on the nose. And this is a, I think, this is a clear case, a clear case of justice at different levels for different people, and it's really unfair. Yeah. Well, you know, the judge in this case essentially 
echoed some of what you just said. The judge said um, <clears throat> that he didn't like the deal that Weisselberg got, but felt obligated to go along with it. But he said that if that deal had not been in place, Alan Weisselberg, he wanted to give Alan Weisselberg a lot more than five months. And he said, the things I've learned about you during this trial, apparently there was some more shenanigans that that came out. So I thought it was very interesting because essentially a judge saying that, that had you not, you know, had the prosecutors not tied my hands I would have given you a much stiffer sentence is kind of a rebuke to the prosecutors as well as to Mr. Mr. Weisselberg. Well, I stand behind those comments, but the only thing is, and I'm not a, I'm not a scholar on the legal system. Uh, you know, as you have done over the years, I did over the years, I covered the courts and so federal courts, state courts, local courts. I don't know, but I think that the judge does have the, the right to overturn or to or to dispute and turn down a plea bargain if he feels it, it wasn't appropriate. Now, your lawyers in, in Chicago may tell you I've got that wrong, and I, I I will accede to you that I I don't know if I'm right about that. But well, that's what I always thought too. But the statement yeah. this judge made was, if it were just up to me, you'd be getting a much harsher sentence. But I'm going to do what the prosecutor has suggested that I do. <clears throat> yeah, that's kind of going along to get along sometimes. I, I, I just think, you know, maybe his hands were tied. Now I'm giving the benefit of the doubt if that's the case, obviously, because he, he couldn't do anything. But I just think the system did not work. You know, Weisselberg. He ran that investigation in a certain sense because he said, I'm not going to do this. You're going to have to charge me with, with whatever you've got because I'm not going to give up Trump, having worked for him for, what, 30 years, 35 years. But, you know, if I'm, if I'm in the minority community, or frankly, it doesn't even have to be in the minority community, but they're the ones who often speak up, and rightfully so, talk about the two systems of justice in this country. Yeah. This is a great example. And if Donald Trump get, doesn't get indicted or gets charged, but, uh, but the evidence uh, doesn't compel that, I think people will say, look at what this guy did. Yep. And for years he's been doing it. It, it. There are two tiers of justice, and it's shameful. David, thank you so much for joining us today. It is always a pleasure to talk with you. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. I love the conversation, too, Joan. Thanks for being here. Uh, that's going to do it for me today. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. Remember, Santita Jackson kicks things off tomorrow at 6 a.m., and I will join you again at 2 p.m. And remember, if you have a question that you would like me to ask one of the candidates at our mayoral forum, question at WCPT820.com. I've also texted out that email address, uh, texted out, uh, posted it on Twitter. So I uh, hope to hear from you. And I will talk to you again tomorrow. Stay safe, my friends. Good night. <laughs>